Hey there, I'm so excited to tell you about Radiotopia's newest show, The Recipe with Kenji and Deb. Kenji and Deb are two of the best home cooks alive. J. Kenji Lopez-Alt of The Food Lab and The Walk, and Deb Perlman of Smitten Kitchen. Two of my go-tos to make sure I'm getting the perfect recipe for everything from meatballs to muffins. They're pros who obsess over techniques and essential ingredients, so you learn everything you need to create your perfect recipe. You can finally be excited to eat what you make, and maybe even impress your friends and family. Help us welcome the newest show to the Radiotopia family. Find The Recipe with Kenji and Deb on your favorite podcast platform starting February 26th. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to This Day in Esoteric Political History from Radiotopia. My name is Jody Avergan. This day, August 16, 1956, at the Democratic National Convention, John F. Kennedy introduced Adlai E. Stevenson as the Democratic nominee for president. Stevenson, the former governor of Illinois, had been nominee in 1952, was now the nominee in 56, and he would actually make a last-minute attempt to be the nominee in 1960. If you don't know that much about Stevenson, despite him being the nominee for president twice and almost a third time, it's because, well, he never actually won, but he is a lasting figure in democratic politics, and we are here to talk about that influence. So I'm joined, as always, by Nicole Hemmer of Columbia. Hello, Nikki. Hey, Jody. And since this is our Sunday election special, we can stretch out a little bit. So we thought we'd talk not just about Stevenson, but also stretch out and talk about other perennial candidates in American political history. And who better to join us in a discussion of people who just keep coming back than our first repeat (laughs) guest on this show. He's Harry Enton of CNN, my former 538 compatriot. And yeah, welcome back to the show, Harry. First time I get to say that to a guest. Oh, I feel so, so honored. (laughs) It's it's like a two-bob miracle. You know, that's the the Jew. Jewish uh, Valentine's Day. Yeah, you're the Adlai <laughs> Stevenson of podcast guests. So how rare is it, Harry, for someone to be nominated twice in a row? Uh, you would think that if they lose once, they kind of have that big, like, I didn't win last time sign hanging around their neck. So what's going on here? Yeah, yeah I mean, look, obviously, it's much rarer in modern presidential history. But certainly, you know, before Stevenson, right, you had Thomas Dewey, who was nominated twice in the 40s for the Republicans. He lost in 44, then got renominated. In 48, lost again. You go all the way back to the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. Williams Jennings Bryant, right, gets nominated three three separate times for the Democrats, loses each and every one of those times, and I believe <laughs> kept losing by larger and larger margins. So, look, it, it's certainly rare now. You know, if basically you lose, you're done, right? Clinton ran in 2016 for the Democratic nominee, and there was no talk of her running in 2020. But, I, you know, I will say, obviously... There was talk of Gore running again in 04 after he lost in 2000. But yeah, it's certainly unusual on the presidential level, at least more recently, once you get the nomination. You know, we should add that William Jennings Bryan, the second time that he ran, ran with Adlai Stevenson's the first as his running mate. So it is a perennial loser 
going yeah. all the way back in time. Maybe the answer here is that there were only like five politicians for a couple <laughs> centuries there. Think, like Henry kept... Clay went up three times. <laughs> right. like... yeah. So Nikki, what do we need to know about Stevenson, whether it's in this specific race or just throughout his career? You know, Stevenson was a vibrant young candidate, somebody who was trying to bring in liberal young people to the party. The party just wasn't ready for that yet. Like he might have been a great candidate in the 1960s or early 1970s, but he's facing a Democratic Party that the punchline now is Dems in disarray. Dems really were in disarray from 48 on. You have the Dixiecrat revolt, and now you have a party that's heart is torn in two between these white segregationists and its more liberal civil rights wing. And Adelaide Stevenson just isn't going to be the guy that brings it together. Yeah, I, I think one thing that was, you know, pointed out there that's so important is a lot of people say, oh, the Democratic realignment happened in 64 or later. But in fact, you really do see a lot of that occurring in both the 52 and the 56 elections under Stevenson, where you essentially see the South not being as strongly held by the Democrats as in prior years. In fact, in both the 52 and 56 election, for example, Florida went to Dwight Eisenhower. So it, it was the beginning sort of tide of the South turning away from the Democratic Party, which obviously then picked up significantly later down the road. Yeah. And so he runs against Eisenhower in both 52 and 56. Um, do we have a sense of whether he is basically like running the same strategy against the same candidate or does he does he adjust accordingly? I mean, he adjusts a little bit in the sense that the big change to campaigns during this period is the rise of television. And Eisenhower had brought in all sorts of consultants to help him become a television maven. And he didn't necessarily ever hit it out of the park, but he was figuring out how to use TV. And Stevenson was too. The difference between 52 and 56 is that in 56, Eisenhower had just had a heart attack and he was using television because he didn't want to do as much traveling during the campaign because he was still bouncing back from this major setback. And Stevenson used television, but also like used his commercials to rib Eisenhower a little bit about the fact that television wasn't the only way to reach people, that you needed to get out there to listen to them as well. Yeah, you know, it's so funny as I think back, it was the beginning of the 52-56 era, and it really was the beginning of the television era, right? I mean, 48, if you go back and watch election night tapes, which is something I love to do, you know, 48, there's basically life sort of teamed up with NBC, and there was this makeshift set, and it really wasn't much <laughs> of anything at all. Versus in 52, obviously, that was, you had a real election nights. You had actually a computer. I believe it was the UNIVAC that came up yep. from Philadelphia, and they were essentially trying to plug that in at CBS to figure out who was going to win the election. Actually, it was pretty good in suggesting that Eisenhower was going to win based on the early returns. Wait, isn't the story that it actually was was accurate, and they didn't believe that it was accurate, so they didn't use it, but it was actually predicting the right but, result? But, well, they, like they, 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 it was something, they, they didn't believe it. Let's just put right. it that way. Yeah. It was so strong for Eisenhower. But, you know, this really is the beginning of a different era in which folks, you know, who were getting televisions just weren't the people on Park Avenue, but were folks like my parents who really were watching television. That's how they were getting their news. Yeah. It is funny because Eisenhower, I think, is kind of like, he was, Nikki, I think, had to come around to the power of television, right? He really had to be convinced that it was worthwhile. Yeah, he wasn't a natural for television, and he wasn't somebody who wanted to listen to this whole range of consultants telling him what to do. He didn't like that idea that he was being managed. And fair enough. I mean, the guy had just beaten the Nazis, and he felt like he had done enough to manage his image. But at the same time, like he was the biggest celebrity in America 
1952. It's no surprise that he thought he had this in hand without necessarily having to listen to a bunch of consultants. Ultimately, he does listen to them, and he does do the television, but he has other assets besides TV. I mean, look, the Democrats tried to get Eisenhower to run on their ticket in 48. He was a celebrity. You know, if you look back at the approval ratings of Eisenhower, you look at the favorable ratings, they're just so nuts and so insane. He's one of the people that almost breaks the model when you're trying to compare approval ratings to re-election percentages, because even people who weren't going to vote for him still really, really liked him. In all honesty, the hardest part of Eisenhower becoming president wasn't either of the two general elections. It was the 1952 Republican National Convention, where he faced a very, very tough challenge from Bob Taft and the more conservative wing of the Republican Party. I want to come back to the 56 convention and the nomination there of Stevenson. So a couple things. Well, one, it's JFK who introduces him. And we'll talk a little bit about JFK's role in all of this. But I noticed in his speech, he introduces Stevenson as the man from Libertyville, which I guess is Libertyville, Illinois, which is a great name. I don't know if that beats the man from Hope, which Bill Clinton used a couple generations later. But I think the lesson is if you want to have your kid be a Democratic nominee, you should move to some town with a with, you know, some 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 town in the Midwest. <laughs> <laughs> like pr- protect entitlements Missouri or some town like that and then you'll have a really low good... Taxington Pennsylvania exactly yes <laughs> but the other th- thing that's interesting about 50 the 56 convention Harry I think you will appreciate this as a listener of ours David Rutledge pointed out that in the 56 convention both of Tennessee's senators and its governor all made credible runs for VP Harry I, I, yeah do you I, know these names well, <laughs> I know I know, I know, obviously, I did not actually know the governor one. Obviously, I know the other senator was Albert Gore Sr. Do you want to go ahead and... uh Okay, so Estes Kefauver was was the other senator, right? Was the other senator. Who became the nominee. Right. And then Governor Frank Clement, or Clement, made a notable keynote address and um, was apparently in uh, very powerful. So that's both a quiz, Harry, but also a question. I mean, something about Tennessee at this moment that uh, they would have this, well, I mean, this role? You know, it was, it was a border state, right? And But more than that, Keith Offer had made any number of runs for higher office and obviously became the VP nominee that year in a very tough challenge with John Kennedy. I think Kennedy ended up being getting everything he wanted and more from that because he became a national name without joining a ticket that was down 20 points going in to the DNC and had no real shot of winning. But that is a very unique situation, I'll just say, right? Very rarely do you have multiple candidates from the same state of the same party being able to mount vigorous bids. And it was very interesting sort of watch the different careers of these different candidates go forward. And obviously, Gore ends up losing a re-election bid about, I believe, it was 12 or 15 years later. But yeah, that is very, very unusual. Just put it that way. And, and the one thing I'll just add to that, you know, was that obviously Kennedy got beat out for VP in 56. But I think the lessons learned of how to organize at a convention and how to organize the delegates served him very well going in the 60, yeah. where he goes into that convention against LBJ, who thought, oh, I can knock off this younger guy, you know, and it just turns out that Kennedy out-organized him. So that's a reason why you run perhaps multiple times is because that second time around, if you're unsuccessful in the first, you might be able to be put yourself in a better position by knowing the rules of the game a little bit better. 
And we talked a little bit, Nikki, you and I, about that there is this sort of history of, of people building up their platform and building their name at a convention where the nominee would go on to lose because, you know, you get this, as, as you were just saying, you get this big platform, you, you get to see be seen as a standard bearer, but then you get to also come in in a vacuum after a blowout. So, you know, maybe Kennedy knew that, that he <laughs> uh, Stevenson was going to lose again. But what is, I mean, what does it mean? You know, I mean, Kennedy seems like such a a turn to something new coming off of... So actually, we should start by saying kind of what happens in 60. So Stevenson says he's not going to run, right, in 60. And then what? At the convention, Harry, there's a last-minute push. Even though Ted, even though JFK is sitting right there, yeah. some people want to bring this guy back for a third time? Yeah, it, it just kind of shows you the Democratic Party was a mess at this point, right? You had Johnson, who was making a run. You, you know, you had Stevenson, this last-second push from Stevenson. Truman really was unsure. Harry Truman, who was the last successful Democratic nominee for president, really unsure about Kennedy. So this just gives you an understanding and why it is esoteric history in some sense, right? We're not going to have any last minute people who are going to come in in 2020 to get nominated. But this just gives you an understanding of how messy the Democratic Party was, how there really was a split between the North, the South and the border states and trying to find a candidate who'd be able to connect with these different parts of the party, which the Democrats obviously were struggling to do during this era. Yeah, how messy it was, but also just, as you were pointing out, Harry, how convention politics just played differently. There are so many names that end up in the ring who maybe didn't even mount primary campaigns or anything like that, but make their bid at the convention. And I'll just point out from the way that history writes this story, I mean, Kennedy seems inevitable obvious you know like of course he was going to be the golden choice and then to sort of revisit it and think that there were these many generations of democratic candidates who were pushing up against that choice is interesting in 1960 so i promised people that we would use this as a chance to talk a little bit about sort of the notion of perennial candidates we've been emailing a little bit back and forth so harry i'll go with you first because this is your chance to sort of pull some names out of uh, out of the back of your brain but are there any people who who just keep showing up in politics over and over and over who you have a particular soft spot for well you know, I, I did email you, Jody. I mean, Harold Stassen was the first one that came to mind. You know, I get was, emails about Harold Stassen a few times a day, so yours must have just slipped through the, through the cracks. <laughs> I apologize. Which, you know, he was a Republican governor from Minnesota, I believe, who ran a very credible race in 1948 and then ran, I, I, I don't even want to say the number of years he ran in which he lost, but I'll just say the last one he ran in which he lost was 1992. 1992. Whoa. So he ran over and over and over again, becoming perennial, 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 more and more over. But, you know, there are a number of examples of perennial candidates, not just on the presidential level, people who were making legitimate bids. You know, Danny Tarkanian uh, out in Nevada has run how many times for different offices and lost? It's this like insane things here. I'll give you the list right here. He ran for the Senate in 04, Secretary of State in 06, Nevada. The Senate again in 2010 and 2016. Uh, the system of higher education in 2014 and the U.S. House of Representatives in 2012, 2016, and 2018. So that's nuts. And then I'll also just mention very quickly two of my favorites, which were Carol Shea Porter and Frank Ginta in New Hampshire's first district, congressional district, where basically one would win, then the other would beat them the following year, then the other one would beat them the following year back and forth. And Mike Sodrell and Baron Hill in Indiana 9 faced off against each other, I believe, in four consecutive elections in the 2000s. It was the nuttiest thing. I believe Hill won three of the four, but still, winners and losers and just people who kept running up against each other. 
Nikki, do you have any favorites or any reaction to that? Uh, yeah, no, I was. I, I love that cascade of names because you know, for some people, running for office is a, a bit of a hobby, and it's it also sheds light on the fact that people don't always run for office to win office. I mean, when I think right. of the perennial candidates, you know, I'm kind of obsessed with the 1990s right now. So I think about people like Pat Buchanan, Ross Perot, David Duke, people who ran for office. I mean, they would have loved to have won. And I think David Duke won a, a special election for a state Senate seat at, at some point. But they more so wanted to get their names out there and they wanted to get their ideas out there as odious as some of those ideas might have been but the, the 90s had all sorts of perennial candidates in them but so as harry pointed out does american history yeah so i mean i guess that's that's a little bit of what i'm what i've been thinking about with this is just you know the cynical view is you do this because it raises your platform it means that you get what higher speaker fees or maybe you get invited on cable tv more because you get to say four-time presidential candidate or whatever i mean how do you think that through how do you look at a candidate and say oh you know what they really believe and they want to push their ideas or they really think they can win every time versus the sort of more cynical approach yeah i don't know i look at somebody like joe biden who could have been that perennial candidate maybe we'll look back at him and see him as a perennial candidate who's run a lot to become president but i think i think the consensus would be that he really wants to become president it's a great question right how do you know what's in someone's heart or you know (laughs) i don't know the answer to that i guess you know in all honesty it's do they really have a serious platform or a way to get out that platform right i mean like someone like buchanan you know, ran a very credible run in 92 and even more credible run in 96. In 2000, he actually got the Reform Party nomination after running for the Republican Party nomination twice. And actually, because they had reached 5%, you know, he was getting matching funds. Unfortunately for him, Buchanan felt sick and it was just a weird thing. And Nader kind of took off uh, as the third party candidate that was actually more successful that year. But then Buchanan stopped running, right? Versus someone like a Stassen who just kept running no matter what and, you know, ran for a president, you know, half a dozen times and runs for mayor and senator and governor and representative. That's something that's very, very different than someone who might have run a number of times who didn't have a legitimate shot, but actually had a message they wanted to get across. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is this changing at all? I mean, it feels to me like there's such a distaste in um, current American politics for people who just feel like old guard. Although, then the, no wait what am i saying then there's biden right so i mean it's just like this interesting thing where it's like i don't know i, I guess i guess my question is can you characterize the state of kind of where we stand with these folks it seems to me like our politics is kind of like turning over a ton and there's just a sort of need for new voices but maybe i'm wrong yeah i mean it's a it's a good question i think that because of the way that the party has lost control of the nominating process, that it's much more likely that we're going to see a lot of people running for president and for reasons other than trying to win office. Um, Sometimes they'll even accidentally win. But those people aren't necessarily, as we see with Biden, but also as we see with Bernie Sanders, they're not all fresh blood. uh, People have been around for a while and still pop back up. It's very interesting. You know, the voices that sort of were out in the wilderness before that seemed like they were far out there will come back through the wind and almost become something. I don't think it's a matter of how long you've been around or how many times you've necessarily run as much as it's a matter of how fresh are your ideas in the political mainstream. And I think there are tired ideas and I think that there are new ideas. 
and right now this is clearly, especially on the Democratic side and a number of the more progressive districts or very Democratic districts, we've obviously seen a number of incumbents get knocked off in a right. slew of different looking districts. Yeah, it's fine. The more I think about that Fitzgerald, what is it? There's no second acts. I'm just like, oh, no, I don't think so. There's like a lot of acts in American <laughs> in American lives. You get you get, some people seem to get third and fourth and fifth and sixth acts, including Adlai Stevenson. We should come back to him. I feel like our show has perhaps maybe encapsulated a little of his experience of in American politics, which is you shine a light on him for a little bit and then you talk about a bunch of other stuff. Uh, so let's come back to him for a second. Is there any final thoughts? Since I don't know if we're gonna. I don't know if he's going to get a second act on this podcast. This might be our last chance to say something about Mr. Stevenson. I mean, the other thing about Adelaide Stevenson is that he was seen as sort of, well, as he put it, the thinking man's candidate. So if we wanted to trace back the origins of this idea that Democrats run thinkers and intellectuals and that it's the thinking person's party or the reality-based party... A lot of that is germinating in the Stevenson candidacy, and it will take off in later years. But I think that this is probably the the hmm. origin of that idea of the, the Democrats as the thinking man's party. He called himself the thinking man's candidate? Um, I don't I don't know you if don't he called himself that. that but that's, yeah, <laughs> I feel a, like let that's Let other bad. people say that about you. You don't want to say that about yourself. That comes off a little. <laughs> well, there was, you know, there was that great sort of quote that sort of disputed Governor, you have the vote of every thinking person. That was, and I remember Mark Green, who was a mayoral candidate in New York, actually said that. And supposedly his response to that quote was, that's not enough, madam. We need a majority. It's a disputed quote, but it's still a pretty good (laughs) quote in terms of the way that we think about politics. And the other thing I'll just sort of note about Stevenson was, you know, despite the fact that he was never successful, he did become the UN ambassador, I believe, and played a pretty critical role during the... Cuban Missile Crisis. So even though he never got to the White House, yes, he was in fact an important figure even beyond his presidential runs. Yeah, and I will note since I'm starting to keep track of uh, all the wonderful names that we encounter over the course of this show, I tried to look up Adlai as a first name on the uh, baby name wizard to show historically. It doesn't even rate. I don't think they're they're naming that many Adlais these days. All right, we're going to leave it there. Disappointing. Yeah, a little disappointing. Sad. Sad, sad. All right, we're going to leave it there. Nicole Hammer, thank you as always. Thank you, Jody. And Harry will be back with us next episode as well for one more episode to talk about Rockefeller Republicans. This Day in Esoteric Political History is a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX. Our producer and researcher is Jacob Feldman. We post transcripts on our website for each episode. Thanks to Kaula Nakua for helping prepare those each and every time. My occasional reminder to help spread the word about the show. You can leave a rating or review in the Apple Store. That really does help others discover the show. The more ratings and review, the higher our ranking, the more people see our show, the more people become listeners of this show, or just spread the word. Uh, We know that the election season is heating up. We will be telling all sorts of stories that help us process the rest of this very tumultuous year. So this is a good time to tell someone about the show. Thanks to everyone who has done that. If you have any questions or comments about the show, you can email us thisdaypod at gmail.com. My name is Jody Avergan. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you soon.
It is, as you may have heard, an election year. But do you feel like you have a lot of choices? Here are the new candidates, same as the old candidates. How did we get here again? The fact is, our democracy is broken. We can all feel it, and there's data to back it up, too. A Princeton University study found that public opinion has near zero impact on what laws are passed. You know what does have an impact, though? Money. You can call it lobbying. You can call it super PAC spending. You can call it corruption. But luckily, there are things we can do right now to fix this broken system. This podcast is part of the Pro-Democracy Podcast Coalition, a group that's banding together to make our democracy better. We're working with Represent Us, the largest grassroots organization fighting to end corruption city by city and state by state. You can join the movement too. Go to represent.us slash podcast to find out more. Radiotopia. Radiotopia.